Reading of God's word. Today's scriptures are from Acts 20, 13 to 23, and Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, found on pages 929 and 977 in the Pew Bible, if you want to use the Pew Bible. Please, please, please listen to the word of God. Acts 20. But going ahead to, to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had, had decided to sail past Ephesus so he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he went to, he went to, sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the, through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Gentiles, repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in earth and on heaven and heaven is named, that according to the riches of the glory of his, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Ted, for reading. Good morning, all. I uh, wasn't able to be with you last week because I was out in Portland visiting my brother. And uh, however, I was with you uh, in the spirit uh, watching the live stream. So two-hour time change. I got up at 7 a.m. and I watched uh, the 9 o'clock service. And I, I was so encouraged uh, to hear from Pastor Manfred uh, this uh, when I got back about the report on the World Vision. So great, uh, great job, congregation. Uh, and coming alongside uh, these kids, and uh, I'm looking forward. I haven't checked my, uh, my my string out there yet to see if I really have been chosen. Manfred, you know, has let me know that I might not be out there, but I'm hopeful that uh, I have been. So, in any case, uh, but thanks to all those of you who participated uh, in that. So, this morning we pick back up in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And to give you a bit of a forecast of where we're going... We've, we've been in this sermon series since January of 2020, so we've been in it for a while, if you're newer to Calvary, uh, and we're going all the way to the end of the year, so uh, we've got, end of this year, so we've got uh, the rest of October we're going to be uh, spending in the book of Acts, and then we'll finish out the book of Acts, and then in November is our missions month, and we're going to be looking at a number of the New Testament epistles during the month of November. And then Advent in December, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. So Revelation and Advent, and then, then we're going to finish out the end of our story on the last Sunday of December. So don't want to miss, uh, you don't want to miss that. 
And here's what we're going to do this morning. This morning, we're going to continue to follow along in uh, the narrative of the Apostle Paul through the book of Acts. And he's interacting here in this passage with the, the elders from the church at Ephesus. And so what I want to do is look briefly here at Acts chapter 20, which has been read for us, where Paul meets with the elders while he's on his way to Jerusalem. And that's going to help us stay on track with Paul's narrative and his story and where he's going in the book of Acts. And it's also going to uh, prompt a question or set up a question that I want to then bring to Ephesians chapter 3. And the question that I want us to think about is what is the root or the ground of the Christian life specifically as we approach difficult places of obedience. And then we're going to move over to Ephesians chapter 3, which Paul wrote to the, to the elders and to the church at Ephesus later, where he explicitly talks about this very thing. So what is the root or the ground of the Christian life? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, perhaps you already know the answer, or perhaps you cheated and you looked at the sermon title and you know the answer. Perhaps you didn't cheat, but you are cheating now looking at the sermon title to figure out what the answer is. Or there's a lot of answers that could be given uh, to it, but I want to focus in particular what Paul says is the root or the ground of the Christian life in Ephesians chapter 3. So even if we already know the answer, maybe with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can give a new twist uh, to this old answer. And then we're going to close out this morning by taking uh, communion together. So on to Acts chapter 20, 13 through 23. We're actually going to go into 24 uh, a little bit. So we last left Paul a couple of weeks ago back in Corinth in Acts 18. And since then, he's actually covered quite a bit of ground. So without going into too much detail, he's been making the circuit from Jerusalem, if you can picture your you know, Mediterranean world, from Jerusalem up north to just the, the east end of Turkey and then west across Turkey into Greece. And then he's been kind of hanging out in Greece and then catches ship, comes back to Jerusalem. He's done that circuit now a couple times. So between Acts 18 and Acts 20, he's been making that loop. He's done it about twice or one and a half times. So it's only been two chapters since Acts 18, but those two chapters have covered a number of years in Paul's life and a number of miles in his journeys. So relevant for our purposes, though, this morning is that Paul has stopped twice in that circuit. He's stopped twice in the city of Ephesus, once for a quick visit at the end of chapter 18, and then for a lengthy visit of a couple of years in Acts 19, where he helped establish and plant the church in Ephesus. He was there long enough to start a riot, and we learned that that's kind of typical of Paul. What he does is he starts riots. So he started a riot, but he established the church there in Acts 19. So we're picking back up in Acts 20. He's left Ephesus. He's kind of made his loop. He's been in Greece, and he's heading to Jerusalem. And he wants to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. And on his way to Jerusalem, he's stopping to meet with the Ephesian elders. Now, he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. So he doesn't have time to run up to Ephesus. But he sends word to the elders in Ephesus that he's going to be in Miletus, which is a port town right along the coast. And he says, come on down, meet me in the port town, and, and we can meet before I head to Jerusalem. So they come down, and they're waiting for him in uh, Miletus when he gets there. So the, re the whole chapter really is Paul's 
exhortation to the elders in Ephesus about how they need to care for diligently the flock of God that's been entrusted to them. And the whole chapter is worth considering, but I want to draw particular attention to the, to the opening comments that Paul says to, to the elders there in verses 20 through, 22 through 23. He tells the elders that he's going on his way to Jerusalem and that he's going constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus is calling him to Jerusalem. And he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen to him, but he does know, he's been told, that he's going to be facing persecutions and afflictions and imprisonment. So look at verse 22 and then verse 23. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So as Paul is making his journey from probably uh, Greece, where he probably decided he was going to go to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, every city that he stops in, every kind of port town or place where he uh, lays over on the journey, the Holy Spirit is testifying to him that he's going to face imprisonment and affliction when he gets to Jerusalem. So you can see examples of this after he leaves Ephesus in chapter 21, if you want to turn over uh, in your Bibles, which you brought to church uh, with you this morning. Thank you for doing that. But in 21 chapter 4, uh, tw- I'm sorry, 21 verse 4, we read, and from there the ship was unloaded, uh, unloaded its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Keep going in uh, chapter 21. Uh, we meet a prophet named Agabus in verse 10, uh, who came down from Judea and met Paul and prophesied that Paul would face imprisonment. So as Paul is going from town to town, making his way to Jerusalem, the prophets of the church are coming out and they're prophesying to him by the Spirit that he's going to be facing persecution. Now, when all the people hear this, they, they keep telling Paul, don't go, don't go. Right? But Paul knows that the Spirit of Jesus is calling him to Jerusalem. So he doesn't interpret the words of the prophet as telling him not to go, but rather just warning him what's going to happen to him when he gets there. So look what he says there then in verse 24, after these prophets come and they're speaking to him about what's going to happen. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he's undaunted by these warnings of affliction that are coming. The gospel must go forth. The call of Jesus upon his life is preeminent. So he knows that suffering and trials are awaiting him, but they're not getting in the way of his obedience. And these sufferings and trials are unique because Paul has faced sufferings and trials, but he's never had all of the prophets of the churches, of the cities he's visited, come out and tell him that he's going to be facing sufferings and trials. So this is unique, what he's walking into. And it is unique suffering and trial. And it does get difficult. Paul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And just as Jesus went to Jerusalem, was arrested by the Jews, was handed over to the Romans, stood trial and then was executed, it's going to be Paul's narrative. He's going to Jerusalem. He'll be arrested by the Jews. 
He'll be handed over to the Romans. He'll stand trial, and he too will be executed. And through it all, he will remain faithful to Christ. So now we get the question that I wanted that to set us up for. What is the root or the foundation of Paul's persevering obedience? He knows he's heading uniquely in to trials and imprisonment. Maybe he even knows this might be the end for him of his ministry. What is giving him his persevering obedience? Upon what ground is he standing that is leaving him so unshakable? Grace, we might say, yes. The Holy Spirit, yes. Hope in the future, yes. But I want to press this a bit more because there's something I think even more foundational than the grace of God or the power of the Holy Spirit or hope for the future. Paul doesn't directly answer this question in Acts chapter 20. But while he is in Rome, so he gets to Jerusalem, he's arrested, he's handed over to the Romans, he's sent to Rome for trial. And while he is awaiting trial, he takes up scroll and pen and he sends a letter to the church in Ephesus. And in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he reveals the root or the ground of the Christian life. So now let's turn to this letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. We're dropping into the middle of this letter here in uh, chapter 3. Paul in 3.14, you see how he starts there, for this reason, he's actually picking back up a thought that he started in chapter 3, verse 1. You look at chapter 3, verse 1, he says, for this reason. So Paul in chapter 3, when he starts the chapter, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he's going to go on to say what he wants to say, but he pauses there. You can see the little hyphen in your uh, note in your Bible there, perhaps at the end of chapter 1 or verse 1. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And then he thinks that maybe they haven't heard of that. So then he does a digression all the way to verse 13, explaining about the stewardship of grace that was given to him. Then he gets to 14 and he picks back up the thought that he had started in verse 1. Right? So even the apostles get distracted and have digressions when they're writing. And probably without a word processor, it just took too long to erase all of that and start over. So you just have to kind of keep going, right? And so he keeps going. Then he's, in verse 14, he's like, okay, for this reason, where was I? Right? For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. This is what he wanted to say in verse 1. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. This is the expression that stands out to me. For Paul, strength and power strength and power, we could say, for obedience, the strength and power of, of our inner man, the inner self, comes from being rooted and grounded in love. When we hear the word root, we might immediately think of its relationship to the word fruit, right? Root and fruit. And the root, of course, we know how it works in plants. The root supports the fruit and sustains it. The, the fruit can't bear itself, right? It needs the root to give life to it so that 
It can be in existence. If the root didn't produce any fruit, it would be a bad root. But the fruit can't exist by itself without the root. So both are important, but one is foundational to the other. It's the same thing with this word grounded that Paul uses here, rooted and grounded in love. The Greek word translated as grounded also is translated elsewhere in the New Testament in the classic world as to lay a foundation, right? So to ground something is to lay a foundation. The foundation of a building supports the building and sustains it. A foundation without a building, that's just a slab of concrete. doesn't do any good. But a building without a foundation is doomed to topple over. So whenever you're talking about two things that relate to each other, like root and fruit, or foundation and building, it's always important to be clear about which is which. So love is the root or the ground of the whole Christian life. But when Paul says that love is the root or the ground of the Christian life, whose love is he talking about? Is he talking about our love? Our love for God and our love for others. So like when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus' response was, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus points to love as the greatest commandment of the law. Our love for God and our love for others. Is that what Paul is talking about here? No, he's not. He's not saying that. Paul is not talking about being rooted and grounded in our love for God. He's talking about being rooted and grounded in God's love for us. We know that Paul is talking about God's love for us because if we read through in 17 and 18, that's what he clarifies. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and depth and length and height and to know the love of Christ. It's the love of God in Christ that is the root and the ground of the Christian faith. In other words, we are strengthened with power in our inner being, not by the love with which we love God, but by the love with which God loves us. Or we could say it like this, the root or the ground of the Christian life is not the love we have for God, but the love he has for us. So John, 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we love God, but that God has loved us. The whole story of the Christian life starts at precisely this point. God's love for us. If you listen to my podcast over the uh, that we put together for what did I learn over my summer vacation. And so we put that podcast out. And if you've listened to that, you know that one of the themes of that podcast was this, was this idea of finding joy. And I, my very first sermon back from sabbatical, I preached from Nehemiah chapter 8 about the importance of joy and how joy is the source of our strength. But I want to press that point a bit further. Joy is the power for obedience but it's not the ground or the foundation 
for obedience. I think it's important to have that clear. So I want to spend some time there on that. I, as I've been reflecting on joy and its relationship to love over this past summer, I've come to see that there are actually two kinds of joy. There's, the, there's joy number one, you might call it, and joy number two. There's the joy of the first joy, which is the joy of the present. Right? It's what I'm experiencing right now. Right? And then there's the joy of the future. The joy of the present empowers obedience. And the second joy, the joy of the future, is what waits for us on the other side of obedience after we've seen the faithfulness of God to bring us through. Right? So let's, I've got some slides for you. I don't use slides a lot, but I've got some slides for you here. So if you're like, I wish my pastor used slides more, today is your lucky day. Maybe don't hang on to it too tight because you might not see him again for a while. But in any case... Uh, so here's how we go. Uh, it's how I'm, I'm picturing this, right? Here we got our little guy. He's tooling along in, the, uh, in his Christian life, and he comes to a place of costly obedience. Right? It's like dipping down into the shadowed valley. Jesus is leading him, and, he, and he's led up to the edge of the shadowed valley. Maybe that's why he's got his hands over his head, because he's in dismay. You know, he's got to go down into the shadowed valley, right? But he's experiencing the joy of the Lord presently, right? And so because the joy of the Lord is present in his life, he can go down into the shadowed valley of costly obedience, and he can go up the other side, and he can reach the future joy. If you've ever followed Christ through to a place, of like through a hard place of obedience or sacrifice and been delivered out the other side, you know the joy that comes at that moment, right? But the, the beautiful thing is that the future joy, once you get to the top, actually becomes the present joy, now, right? So then now you're back in more with present joy. And if we could carry this picture further on, the, 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 the new height to which you have gets a new shadowed valley, a new costly obedience, and you climb that up higher and you keep going. So every time you have the present joy, it empowers you through the obedience, the costly obedience into the future joy, which becomes the present joy, which gives you now the joy to keep moving forward in life. But here's the question that we have to ask ourselves, where does the present joy first come from? Where does it begin? Because if the future joy becomes present joy because of obedience, do we have to be obedient? Are we the first ones to take the first step of obedience before we get the present joy? Go to this second slide. The present joy always comes from the love of God. It's when we are experiencing the love of God that we find joy in our lives. Joy comes from the love of God. If you perhaps have been converted to Christ as an adult and you have a very clear story of conversion that goes, my life was like this and it was dark or it was painful or it was, uh, I was wandering alone, I was destitute or confused, to Christ met me. He poured out his love upon me. God poured out his love upon me in Christ. And then now my life is this and it's different and I'm so filled with joy, right? Like the pivot point in that story is the love of God. Like we didn't do the obedient things to get the present joy, right? We weren't doing the obedient things. And God's love met us unconditionally in that moment, bestowed his love upon us in Christ. 
And it birthed joy in our hearts. And then in that joy, we have then, be able, we have then begun to live the Christian life. Some of you maybe even know this, you know, like your own story, or the stories of others of how frustrating it can be to try to live the Christian life without that joy, right? It's the love of God that gives us the joy that enables us to move through life, living out even costly obedience. But I think here's what can happen to us if we've been a Christian for any length of time. Maybe this is your story this morning. I think this was a bit of my story over the summer. As you experience the love of God, births joy in your heart, and you begin to walk faithfully with Christ. And you encounter hard places of obedience, and you, in faith, you move into those places of obedience. You come out the other side. And as you mature in Christ, you begin to see that God has called you, and he's poured out his love upon you, so that you can be a conduit through which his love goes out into the world. And you begin to focus in your maturity on loving God and loving others, because that's what's right. But somewhere in your focus as a mature Christian on loving God and loving others, you begin to lose sight of just how much God loves you. And you let the work for God, the duty of loving God, the duty of loving others, begin to cloud out your vision of how much God has loved you. And then, maybe your life looks like this. Third slide. You've lost sight of how much God loves you. And because you've lost sight of how much he loves you, you've lost the power that comes from joy. And then you get to the place of costly obedience, and it's just too much. You just don't have the strength to move into that place. So perhaps some of us, we get to that place and rather than trying to reconnect with the love of God, we just turn away and we just run. We just run from the places of costly obedience. And you can do this in sort of a grand big way of apostasy where you reject the faith altogether or we can all do it and we all do in our own little microwaves of apostasy where we encounter hard places of obedience. And because we're not focused on the love that God has for us and filled with joy, we just turn away from all those hard places. Some of us are wired like that, right? We're, we're, we're more prone to turn away when we encounter costly obedience and we're not filled with joy. But not all of us are wired like that. Let's go to the Last slide here. Some of us, when we lose sight of God's love for us and we lose joy, we're just very dedicated. We're just very persevering. And so we go down into the shadowed valley without joy, without the love of God. And we, in our own strength, descend into the blackness and claw our way back up to the top. And if we succeed at it and we get to the top, we don't actually find future joy. What we find is pride and self-reliance. And many who try to go down into the shadowed valley without joy and not standing upon the love of God can't make it up to the top. And they end up in apostasy anyway. 
But if they do make it up to the top, it's not even really the real top, but it's close enough in their own minds. They don't get there with joy. They get there with pride and self-reliance. So in sum, if you are prone to flee away from the hard places of obedience, if your reflexive instinct when you get to the hard places of obedience is to move towards the path of apostasy, then you need to dig deeper into the love that God has for you until joy is birthed in your heart. Then from there, you will have the power to move forward in obedience. Or for those of you, and this is more like me, who are tempted to strive for a life of obedience in your own strength, when you come to those hard places and you're not feeling the joy, you don't feel the love of God, it's all lost sight of that, you're just going to power through in your own strength. If that's you, then you too must likewise dig deeper into the love that God has for you until joy is birthed in your heart so that you can go into the hard places of obedience, not in your own strength, not the strength of your own will, but in God's power that comes through his love and joy. Because all of us are strengthened with power by the joy that comes from the love that God has for us, not by the love that we have for God. Last week, Andy Brandt shared a quote from A.W. Tozer to the effect that the most important thing about us is what we think about God. And it's, a, it's a good quote. So here's the full quote. It's on the screen there. If you're trying to like write it all down real quick, just you can send me an email and I'll, I'll send it to you. But, all right, but here's the full quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Now, I like that Tozer quote. Because it's true that what we conceive or think about God will shape every aspect of our life. But Andy, I'm going to see your Tozer quote, and I'm going to raise you a C.S. Lewis quote, because I like C.S. Lewis a lot. Lewis was familiar with Tozer's quote, but he countered it, and he said this. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God, and and I'm pretty sure he read Tozer's comment. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actively survive that examination shall find approval, shall please God. To please God. 
to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. I think if we want to be generous, I think Tozer and Lewis are actually probably saying the same thing. But at the end of the day, I like the way that Lewis is saying it here. Because what's the point of having right thoughts about God if God doesn't love us? What if we just rightly discern that God doesn't love us? It does us no good. It's so important that we have right thoughts about God because God has already had a loving thought about us. And it's his love for us that is the most important thing about us. And the good news is that he loves us even when we forget that he loves us. Even when we think wrong about him, he is still loving us. He truly loves us. Not just a little, not reluctantly, not with a scowl. Maybe some of you, like when you think about the parental love that you receive from your parents, like that's how you think of it. It's sort of a, a scowling sort of love. A reluctant sort of love. But he loves us like the best and truest and most ideal good father or mother delights in their child. When a new baby is born and the mother or the father hold their child, they're delighting in the child just because. Just because. Not because the child has done anything. Not because the child is going to do anything. Not because the child is like, I love you, dad. I love you, mom. The child doesn't even know what a mom or dad is. But yet the love of the parent is poured out upon the child. That's God's love for us as he has made us his own children in Christ by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he loves us with that kind of love. The kind of love that just like with a parent and a child makes us truly an ingredient in the divine happiness. I love how Lewis says that. To believe that we actually make God happy. It is amazing. It's too amazing. The love that God has for us, Paul says here in Ephesians 3, is so broad, it's so long, it's so high, it's so deep that it surpasses human knowing. We can't even understand it. I don't feel like I can even speak about it. We can't even know it or understand it. But we can experience it and we can embrace it. And it's when we come to experience and embrace, not just understand like intellectually, not just hear the words, but when we come to experience and embrace the deep an unmerited love that God has for us. That's when we find the joy and the strength to enter into the hard paths of obedience. 
So we experience the love of God most fully as centrally in our lives in the person, the gift of Jesus Christ. So we transition now to communion. Apostle Paul says this to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 